Good evening. You know, there's a scripture in Acts that says the Bereans were more noble than some of the others. Uh, they were more noble Christians than the others. And there's some reason. I want to say you're more noble than some other churches I've been to. There's a church that's down the road. I won't give you any clues as to their name. I was due to preach there on a Friday night. And then they heard the Springboks were playing. So I got this phone call. Say, uh, are, are, you, are you sure you want to come out tonight? You know, aren't you tired? And, you know, and uh, I could hear they were like, and in the end I said, listen, is it about the rugby? They said, yeah, you know. So I said, listen, I'll set you guys free. That's fine. And I canceled everything. So, uh, so yeah, I am two sessions before the rugby. You're a noble crowd, let me just say to you. <laughs> and, uh, and by the way, I'm preaching tomorrow on mental health. Now that might seem maybe I'm predicting the outcome of the game. But actually, it's got nothing to do with that at all. So I do want to say that that was in my heart. Um, got nothing to do with tonight at all. There's no, there's no predictions based on that. But uh, I did mention for the people that were here last night, so I'm mentioning it again if you were not here last night. It's an opportunity if you'd like to invite somebody that doesn't normally come to church. And you can just say to them, there's somebody that's going to be sharing on mental health. He's going to be sharing some of his own journey with that. He's going to be sharing some of my journey with, with my own life and some of my family and some of the situations we've been through. Come and listen. It's a great opportunity for you to invite somebody that might not normally come to church, but it is a topic that, that obviously people are very, very aware of in our country. So I want to just say, invite them on Sunday. It's a non-threatening message. It's an inviting message to the beauty of the Word of God in how it actually brings such an incredible hope for us if we're battling with any form of mental illness so, or mental struggles, mental health issues, emotional health issues. So please feel free to invite friends along. You can just invite them, and uh, it might be an opportunity for them to come in, experience this beautiful church, and actually decide, well, I'm going to come again, you know. So uh, I'd love you to, to do that. So last night I shared a word that I felt, and I'm just going to launch my message from that. Psalm 46 says, be still. And I mentioned last night, that's not a thing of let's turn down the lights, let's soften the music, let's have a moment of sort of quiet. The psalmist says, be still, which actually means enough. Enough of your fighting, enough of your frenzy, enough of this rushing around. Be still and know that I am God. And one of the commentators says, until we are still and we stop our striving, we cannot fully experience the fact that the one whom we serve is God Almighty. But as we still our hearts and we stop our frenzy, we become aware that He is God. And then in turn, that stalls us even more. And one of the reasons we can be still is because the Psalms 46 says there is a river. There is a river. You don't have to, you don't have to create the river. There is a river. Be still. It's not all up to you. There's a river that is bringing gladness into the habitation of God. You know, the Christian life can sometimes develop into something that we've learned outside of the Scriptures. It can become a place of frenzy, of striving, of rushing, of, of exhausting ourselves. We get to a place where we think this is what Christianity is. Even young people, the Bible says they, they can be young and they can grow weak and weary. That we've got this awareness of 
Christianity is this thing that's a striving. We've got to do this. We've got all these things. And the Bible says we must do all of these things. But actually, they are meant to be overflows of the river of God. Our place as believers is a simple life with God. The simplicity of Christianity is to be still and know that He is God. He wants to quieten His people. He wants to bring us, you know, Enoch, one of the great heroes of the Bible. He's listed in the champions in Hebrews 11. And yet when you read his CV, all it says about him is that Enoch walked with God and was no more. That is his CV, you know. And something, there's a simplicity of that, that actually he's commended because of the simplicity of his life, that he learned to walk with God and then was no more. And so, in these two sessions tonight, I, I, want, to, I want to speak about the simple basics of our relationship with God. The simple things, there's nothing I'm going to say tonight that you're going to think, sure, I didn't know that. But I believe God wants to quieten us, me, you, his church, to quieten us. So this is what it means to love God. This is what it means to be his people, which has got the two topics to What it means to be loved by God and to love God and what it means to be his people. I'm going to have about six points in these two sessions. It's a simple truth. God wants to bring us, we're experts in the scriptures, but sometimes we get experts in so much of the things that we've got to be doing that we forget the simplicity of what it means to walk with God. And if you were to make a guess, and perhaps I have given away which book I might be sharing from, I am sharing from tonight. But if you were to to guess what was Jesus' favorite book, now obviously he didn't have the New Testament, but when he was on the earth, what was his favorite book? And you, you were to base your selection of uh, his favorite book on the book he quoted from the most. I wonder if you would guess which one it is, which book he quoted from the most, more than any other book in the Old Testament. And, uh, and uh, there's some that come close, but there's one that stands out above all the others. It's the book of Deuteronomy. And sometimes that's a book that we want to avoid. Now, Deuteronomy is a book, it's a, it's a record. They generally have studied it and generally... Th- The commentators say it's a selection of three sermons by Moses at the end of his life. After all his journey of taking, leading the people out of Egypt, leading them through the wilderness for 40 years, and at the end of his life, as he knew that that he was not going to enter the promised land, but he wanted to prepare this generation, he went and he recapped all of the stories, and he summarized all that they'd been through, all that had happened in their history over the past 80 years of their journey from Egypt to slavery to the place where they are again at the Jordan going to cross over. And he brings these three sermons, kind of his last address before he will die and they will then enter into the promised land. And so, um, if it, okay, you'll signal to me if you can't hear. So, anyway, so... Deuteronomy comes, and when you read through Deuteronomy, you will find that it's a book that culminates with the summary that Jesus quotes when they were asking him, what is the greatest command? He went to Deuteronomy, and the greatest command ever given to the human race Above all things ever from God spoken as a command given in the scriptures comes out of the book of Deuteronomy. 
And that is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. Deuteronomy. And you can understand 80 years of journeying comes to this one summary. Moses says to the people, this is what God requires of you, that you will love him. And you know what? The Torah, which is the, the, uh, the Jewish word for the first five books of the Bible, we're starting with Genesis, ending with Deuteronomy. This is the fifth book. None of the other four books of the Torah have the instruction to love God. You won't find any instruction. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. There's nowhere in those books where it says to love God. One of the commentators says the instruction that Moses gave at the end of these 80 years where he led the people, the instruction to love God was a revolutionary. They've never heard such a thing in their lives before. They had heard that they were loved by God. But they'd never heard that they were able as human beings to love God. And it was summed up there. This is it. This is why he's brought you out of Egypt. This is why he's defeated your enemies. This is why he's given you a promised land that you can go into. This is why he's given you his commands to protect and guide you. That you may love him with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. It's a book about loving God. And it's a, sometimes we miss it when you read it. It's got a lot of hair-raising stories in it. But when you follow it through and you read through Deuteronomy and you look at its themes, this is what it's about, which is why I believe it was Jesus' favorite book. Because it's why he came. He says, I've come to show you the Father. That you may love him with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul. With all of your strength. You see, all else we do as Christians, all the other stuff to plant churches, to study theology, to, to go on outreach, to, to do all the things we, we, church meetings and everything we do, all that stuff that we do is actually the overflow of this one thing. To love God with all of my heart, with all of my mind, with all of my soul, with all of my strength. You know, that. That is, that is the simplicity of our, that is what we've come into. Now, it was difficult for them because they were a slave nation. And all of us have come out of slavery. They, they were a slave nation. The concept of coming into a loving relationship where they were loved by God and in turn they could then learn to love Him with all of their hearts was strange to them. And we're going to look at this journey of Moses' teaching to bring a slave nation to a place where they can live in a space of freedom knowing they loved by God and in response they love him. That's our promised land that Jesus has bought for us. And it's amazing, you know, sometimes one thinks the Old Testament is, you know, not that effective in teaching us how to live in the new but actually, it's quite amazing how many times Deuteronomy is quoted by different authors in the New. You know, when, when Paul wanted to talk about true salvation, and he, he wanted to teach the people salvation and, and serving God is not about changing the outside, it's about changing the inside. You know what he used? He used a scripture from Deuteronomy where it says, God desires circumcision of the heart. That scripture is in Deuteronomy. And at another place... 
when he taught to the Romans and he, he wanted to teach them how they could respond to God, he used a, a quote from Deuteronomy and he says, God is not far, but the word is near you. It's in your mouth. It's, it's right there. The word is near. Deuteronomy. And when Peter wanted to teach believers about what it means to be God's people, he quotes not only from Deuteronomy, but he quotes in one of our most commonly quoted scriptures. We sing songs about it. We quote it. It's about our identity as Christians. In 1 Peter 2 verse 9, but he quotes it three times straight out of Deuteronomy. You'll, you'll recognize this. 1 Peter 2 verse 9, you are a chosen race, Deuteronomy. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, Deuteronomy. A people for his own possession, Deuteronomy. He quotes Deuteronomy to teach us the grace of God and what it means to be loved by God. You know, Deuteronomy is an incredible book. I know Jesus has fulfilled the law in its entirety. He has fulfilled the Old Testament practices. He's fulfilled all of that. But that doesn't devalue the Old Testament in any way. It becomes a book we can rush to with the joy of knowing that Jesus has fulfilled it. But within its every dot, every letter of it teaches me of what it is to love God can find it in the Old Testament. So I'm going to be sharing with you some of the things from that book. And I'd love you to turn to Deuteronomy 7, which is going to be my key text in both sessions. Deuteronomy chapter 7. As we look at in the first session, what it means to live under the grace of God. And in the second session, what it means to live as God's people. So let's read Deuteronomy chapter 7. Verses 6 to 8. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. That Peter quoted that I read just now. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the people who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you. And he's keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. I'm going to be studying these scriptures in detail in these two sessions, mainly coming from here. But it's a message to us as his church, a message God wants to speak about. I want to speak about what does it mean to live under God's grace, and I think just three points. And they, I'm going to ask if you can keep your Bible open there. I'm going to refer back to it a number of times. But I, I want to say, firstly, what it means to live under God's grace from Deuteronomy's perspective is to be chosen by unreasonable love. And I, I want to unpack that a little bit. To live under God's grace means to be chosen by unreasonable love. And I'd like you please to look at verse 7 that we've just read. And it starts off with why the Israelites were not chosen. It says, it was not because you were more in number than any other people. That the Lord set his love on you and chose you. Now, for our context, 
That means God didn't choose you because you had some built-in value that made you stand out from anybody else in this world. He didn't choose you because, well, he, you know, he had to pick between you and the person next to you and he sort of scratched his head and said, well, okay, this is going to give me more value long term. So I'll choose this one. You know, and you can, you see the system of Egypt was quite different. The systems of the world is quite different. It will choose you based on your CV, your experience, your age, strength, health, whatever else you might throw in there. They'll choose you. But here it says, I didn't choose you because there was something significant about you. I didn't choose you because you were better. I didn't choose you because you were more holy, because you were more ripe, because you had more faith. I didn't choose you for any other reason. So wait for it. Here's the reason. Verse 8. It is because the Lord loves you. So we need to see the circular reasoning here. It doesn't make any sense to me at all. God comes and he says, you know why I love you? Well, it's not because of anything about you that made you. It's because I love you. But that doesn't make a circular reason. It's just you end where you started. You keep, and you can just keep going around. That's why Jeremiah could say every morning he gets up and he, he, he's got this battle because he's seeing all the suffering that Jeremiah had to go through. But he says, but this thing I bring to mind, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies are new every morning. You see, because it's circular, you start and you end at the same place. There's no way of getting around it. Why did you choose me? Lord, was it something that I earned, something that I worked for? No, I, I, I love you. I set my love on you because I love you. Now, now that thing might not satisfy people because generally when you say, when you start to talk about choosing, God chose you, our human mind starts to race, fuses blow. The whole thing of predestination and all those things, pop, 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 fuses go and everything. And you know, so often our mind loses the reason why God says he chose us because we now get into this reasoning mode. Well, you know, you know are some people just going to go to hell and, 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 you know, it's not their fault because, you know, is it just predestined? And we get all these things which were never the intention why God said, I chose you. The reason he says I chose you was that we might be overwhelmed by the fact that there was nothing, no reason on this earth that he chose me for that he chose me. That's why we need to know we are chosen. You cannot get that doctrine out of the Bible. It's in there. Sometimes I wish I wanted to preach on Ephesians in my early days of preaching. I thought I loved the book of Ephesians and I didn't think clearly because it was right there. I said, oh, we're going to preach on Ephesians chapter 1 next week. And as I prepared my sermon, it starts there, you were predestined. And I thought, oh my soul. You know, and there you, so, you know, we can't get it out the Bible. But the reason it's in there is that you and I can get to the place of this deep awareness of unreasonable love. And what does it do to me? The fact that I'm chosen by this unreasonable love, the first thing that it does to me is it washes me. And Bruce has run ahead of me because he was praying that already when I was speaking. It washes me. You know, we need to be washed because we've come out of slavery. We've come out of a place. You know, when God took the Israelites out of the wilderness 
and they crossed the Jordan with Joshua and they crossed in and Jericho was lying ahead of them and the Jordan was now behind them and they were, they were going in and they, they got the smell of the, of the promised land and the manna ceased and all that stuff and they, they were in the land and they, they thought, well, here we go, we're in. We, got our, we set our foot on the promised land and here's our first city we've got to conquer is Jericho and God stopped them there. Stop. And you know what happened there? He says, I want you to circumcise the people. And then they did that. And they couldn't fight because of the the healing that had to happen after the circumcision. And then he said, I'm going to call this place Gilgal. Because here I'm rolling away the reproach of Egypt. And it's a remarkable truth to realize that most of the people sitting there weren't even born in Egypt. They were born in the wilderness. Those born in Egypt, most of them had died on the way. Or they were very little when they came out. But the ones that sat there, but yet they all carried the reproach of Egypt. Where did they get it from? Where did they get the sense of unworthiness, inferiority? They got it. It was like passed down from generation to generation because they were a slave nation and they passed it on to their descendants. And so they were sitting there and God said, it's time we've got to roll it away. And God wants to roll away the reproach of this world that we've come out of, the slavery we were born into, the systems of sin in this world. He wants to wash it away with unreasonable love that we can be a people that are still because we are loved and that the racing that this world has taught us to live by and the fighting, and many of you here are survivors. I've listened to some of your stories and to live in Joburg, it's a surviving place. It's a survival of the fittest. Some have come from other nations to make it here in this city and you've had to fight to survive here and we want to bring that into our Christianity and we're fighting as Christians to survive and God says, be still. Let the unreasonable love wash us that we stand in a place where we say, but God... I cannot find a reason, but I know that I'm loved. And I'm so glad there's no reason that I could find. Because if there was a reason, I'd have to make sure I keep that up. Else I might lose this love. So if you love me because of my good looks, which I know I still have, but were I to lose them, then God would say, you know, know, and I'm joking here, but, but isn't that sometimes where we get to. I've got to keep striving because I'm scared I'm going to lose this love. And so God wants to wash us. In so many places we find this in the scriptures. You know, in the Song of Songs. This love song of the husband. These love poems of the husband and the wife. And leading up to their wedding in the first part of it, there's some insecurity seemingly with, with the bride. And you've, you read in Song of Songs, chapter 1, she says, Don't stare at me. I've been darkened by the sun. My brothers made me work in the vineyards and I got scorched by the sun. So don't look at me. I'm feeling a bit embarrassed about my appearance. And isn't that a picture of us? You know, we, we, God says, I love you. And we, we say, but God, don't look too close. I've been scorched. I'm carrying something of the sun of life. Been exposed to things. Oh Lord, don't look too close. I'm embarrassed about my life. And and then we see the response of the husband to be. And he says, oh, you're most beautiful. You are 
beautiful. And he, he goes into great detail. There's age restrictions on the book. But anyway, but we'll keep it there. But he washes her with his words. You see, to wash away the scorching of this word. And we need that, that we can be still. And we find how Paul uses that to teach husbands how to love their wives. And he says, husbands, this is how you do it. He says, take the example of Christ. And what did Christ do? He washes us with his word. His word. And what is his word? His, his word comes. And he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And he brings this unreasonable love that washes us. You may have had pe people speak words over you. It's amazing how sometimes words stick. Stupid. Stupid in my own head. Stupid. I tried to reason myself out of it. How, as a child, it just seemed to happen. As a child in grade seven, a teacher said something to me, and for decades it stuck. She made a derogatory comment about something that I did in the class. And it stuck. You know what? And I mean, that's just something small. How much more have people been exposed to words of parents, perhaps, or a husband that has deserted you, or a wife, or something? That, and, and we've got these things that stick, and we, we, we've got these things that have scorched us. Like the people of Israel, they'd grown up, their little ones had grown up with the sound of the whip on their parents' backs. That's how they'd grown up. Scorched them. And now they're under the hand of God. And they want to bring them some of those things and say, don't look too close, Lord. I still hear the whip sound. And God says, oh, the reason I chose you was not because of something that made you valuable. It's because I've chosen to set my love on you because I love you. It washes us. The second impact that this, I'm still on my first point, which is this thing of this unreasonable choosing. So it washes us. The other thing that it does is it leads us to love him. It's the greatest command ever given in the Old Testament. Jesus repeats it in the New. The command to love God didn't come first. God first set his love on Israel in the slave nation. He set his love on them. He broke open the Red Sea. He led them out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And he, he poured out unreasonable love on them. And the result was that they, that they would be a people that would love him. And we find the same repeated in the new. We love because God first loved us. You see, it's only when we come under unreasonable love that we can become lovers of God and lovers of people and lovers of the lost. And so the outflow of the simple walk with God is to be washed by unreasonable love and the response is that we love him. And you know, there's two words that should never be separated in the scriptures. It's the word love and obedience. You do not find them separated. They, they're intertwined. And we've had all kinds of false doctrines that teach about, you know, that, they, that you can cut them with a knife and you can separate them and, and you know, and, and you are more important to God than your obedience and all those kind of things. And 
but it's a misunderstanding of this, that God loves us, and our response is that we love him and we lovingly obey him, and we never separate those two. You'll find in 1 John, it's exactly what John teaches. If you love me, you will obey me. It's, it's not like a proof of your love. It's because it's the same thing. To love God means I want to live every day of my life to obey him because he's loved me with this unreasonable love that I didn't deserve. And so I mess up from time to time, but then I bounce back because deep in my heart, I've been touched by his love. You see, this is an understanding of Christian obedience. And so when you read through Deuteronomy, there's a whole lot of laws and things in the Old Testament. And we understand how they fit in in the New. But the idea was never that God came and he plonked these rules on them. I'm your new taskmaster. I have replaced Pharaoh and Jung. Yes, are these things. Actually, he loved them. And he gave them these so that within those they would be free to love him. They were never meant to be things that would restrain and restrict and bind them. And yet somehow that's the Christianity we present to the world. Whereas the church we know for what we are against, not for what we are for. And a friend of, it's an acquaintance of my son. My son lives in the Netherlands in Amsterdam. And he became closer to an unbeliever, never been to church in his life. But eventually this person asked him straight out. So he says, are you religious? So he said, yes, I'm a Christian. And he flared up in anger and he said to him, you are those people that hate the gays, that are against abortion. And he listed a whole lot of things. Never been to church in his life, but that's the reputation that he had of the Christians. But actually, God wants our reputation to be those that say, we are a people loved by God. We are his people. That's what we're for. And so we have this incredible awareness of loving God in obedience. Another thing that this unreasonable love brings to us is it brings us great confidence to do everything God calls us to do. You see, because, because I had no role in him choosing me, that I can confidently follow him. Because there was no way that I could trick God into thinking I was something better than what actually I was. So that he can end up saying, well, okay, you, 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 I saw your CV, apparently you can do this, so go and do this. And then we realize we crooked the CV a little bit and we inflated it a bit. But because God knew us and he said, there's nothing about you that I choose you, I can be confident that's why Paul could say, when he gets opposed by the Corinthians and they, they start to challenge his apostolic authority, he, he can say, Paul, an apostle, by the will of Christ. You see, what gave him confidence was not his ability and whatever, but because God chose him. And it brings us this deep confidence that when I'm walking in with him, I can be confident to do what he's called me to do. And the last sort of outflow of this unreasonable love is that it brings us to rest. And I've repeated that a number of times. So I won't expand on it anymore. But because there was no reason, except God set his love on me because he loved me, I can rest. I can be still. I don't have to strive. I will lovingly obey him. But it's an outflow 
There's not something that I have to do to keep this thing going. Except to look at him and to say, oh Lord, I love you. The second thing of what it means to be under God's grace. And this one seems to counteract what I've just said, but it doesn't. But Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 36, my point number two. Let me read it to you and then I'll give you the point. He says, out of heaven he let you hear his voice that he might discipline you. The second thing of what it means to come under the grace of God is to be brought under his discipline. It's a word that unfortunately in our day has got a twisted meaning. Discipline is generally seen as a response to wrongdoing from an authority figure. And so you do something wrong and then you get the reaction or whatever it might be. And so when we read the word discipline in the scriptures, we kind of think, well, that means I walk along. When I make a mistake, God will discipline. There'll be a reaction. And actually, the discipline that we read about in Deuteronomy is what inspired the writer of Hebrews when he wrote in Hebrews 12, I think it is, 12 or 13, where he writes about discipline. And he says, no father who loves his child will not discipline them. But he will discipline them for their good that they might have a harvest down the line. And it's a beautiful thing. And he gets all of that. It's all taught in Deuteronomy. How God brought Israel out of slavery And he brought them under his discipline, which is a word which is not a reaction to wrongdoing, where we do something wrong and we get a reaction, nor is it retaliation. You know, you hurt me, I'll hurt you back. This is retaliation. It's not that. But it's a formation. It's a formative hand of a father. And God says that over Israel. I will form you with my discipline. And so we need to understand this, that when we become a Christian, we come under this incredible thing, the safety net that God will put around me, his discipline. And I can be free as a son or as a daughter because I've got this this incredible loving arms around me that I know that whether I go here or there, the loving discipline of God will form me for my future. And God will never discipline us to repay us for wrong done in the past. He always disciplines us to prepare us for a future. We read that in Hebrews. It is forward-looking. It is a father saying, we've got to shape these things and form it to make it ready for what's to come, that there may be a harvest of righteousness. And so we come under this incredible thing how God says, I disciplined Israel. And it's the word in the New Testament that we get the word disciple from, which is a far more friendlier sounding word to our ears. You know, we'd like the word, we're going to disciple each other. And that It's the same word. God comes and he forms us. When I look at my life, discipline is never something that I could celebrate at the time. And the Hebrew writer says the same. When you're going through the discipline, the formative work of God as a father on your life, you very often do not think it's a father. You think it's like a a taskmaster when you're going through it. It feels like it. You don't feel it's helping me. 
You feel like it's hurting you. But discipline has got this beautiful thing that when we go through it, even though we might resist and whatever, we allow God to work through the things that happen in our life, we get to a place where we look back over our lives and we say, praise God for two things. Number one, praise God that he's changed me through what's happened and praise God that it's finished. May I never, ever have to go through that again. That's the discipline of God. And the Hebrew writer says, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. But the beauty we have is that Paul writes in Romans and he says, no matter what we're going through, the sovereign power of God has the ability to take everything that you might go through in life, if we will allow him in our lives, he will work it for our good. Even the depths of pain, loss, suffering that this world will throw at us, God has the power to say, I will take that and I will make it an instrument to form my child for their future that no matter what this world throws at them, no matter what the devil throws at them, whether height nor depth, whether demons or angels, whether principalities and powers, no matter what, I will use it in my mighty sovereign hand to form you to have a harvest. You see, that's what we get brought into as the grace of God. That's what he said to Israel. So I want to say the amazing thing of God's grace is that we're brought into unreasonable love, but at the same time we're brought into this incredible safety of God's discipline. His discipline carries us, and it's a father's heart. And he disciplines us generally, firstly, with his word. That's what I found. God's primary way to discipline his people is with his word, which is why it is so critical that we listen to what the Hebrew writer says. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. God's discipline will come with his word, and when we hear his word and we let his word form us, we save many troubles. And I wish I'd known that better way back. But the best thing we can do is let his word form you. It's got the least pain. (laughs) When he speaks, don't harden your heart. Don't be stubborn. Because, you know, he'll use his word like he he, he will. There's a, a a psalm that talks about it. I think it's in the Psalms. Where leading a horse. And he'll say, come, 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 horsey, come this way. And if the horsey doesn't listen to the word, then he's got another thing in his mouth. And he'll use the bridle. Come. Going, yeah. You see, and the one's got more pain than the other. And it's the same with us. And that doesn't mean God likes to inflict pain, but he knows sometimes that it's through things we go through to form us. So today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Be quick. And the more times you felt the hand of discipline on your life, generally the effect is the quicker we learn to listen down the line. Hopefully that's the case. Because we say, oh Lord, I've learned now. When you speak, I'm going to rather fix it straight away. Say, so, Lord. The third and last one, I'll be quick on this one. The third impact of the grace of God that we see in Deuteronomy is that he gives us his divine leading. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 32 and 33, it says, He went before you in the way 
to seek you out a place to pitch your tents in fire by night and in the cloud by day to show you by what way you should go. The very moment we become followers of Christ, we inherit this incredible blessing that God says, I will lead you in the way where we will go. Jesus said in John chapter 10, my sheep hear my voice. We need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, which just fills us more and more with the sensitivity to the power and the speaking of the word of God through the Spirit. But from day one, when you receive Christ, he sets before you his voice, because my sheep hear my voice. You don't have to learn to hear it. You can learn to hear it better, but you've got that gift from day one that my sheep hear my voice. God sets before Israel <clears throat> as he led them out of Egypt. He set before them the cloud by day and the fire by night. We have this gift. It's been given to us. One of the great responsibilities God has taken over your life. He says, I will lead you. God has taken the responsibility over your life. The moment you came and became one of his, he says, I take responsibility to lead you. And I will set before you the way. And sometimes I'm only going to show you enough to say, we're going to pitch your tent here tonight. But Lord, I heard all this talk about promised lands and stuff. And this place doesn't look anything like it. We'll pitch your tent here. And get up the next morning, open your tent and have a check. As the cloud moved, it's still there. Keep the tent up. Next day, check. Tent. Next day, clouds moving. Break down the tent. Let's go. We need to understand from day one, this is the grace of God. God's leadership has been promised to you, every one of us. Unfortunately for Israel is that they hardened their hearts to his leading. And there was an interesting result. Is that in Deuteronomy chapter 2, it says... Moses starts his sermon. He says, you guys, remember they'd been through the wilderness 40 years. Moses comes to them and he says, right, guys, you know you've been going around this mountain country long enough. What happens is, what happened is their forefathers had hardened their hearts and God resisted them and they ended up in what I want to call circular Christianity. They went round and round the mountain kingdom. 40 years, circular Christianity. Somebody once said, when God leads us a straight line Christianity, when we resist in God's leading, become circular Christianity. And we've got to analyze our lives and to say, have I been to this place, same place before? And I've been here again, and I'm back here again, and I'm back here again, and I've heard the sermon before, and I haven't changed my life, and so I'm back here again, and there's no progress. I'm just going round and round. And there comes a day where God says, you've hardened your heart. I've given you the gift. Listen to me and follow me. Let me lead you. And so these three things is where I'll end this now. The grace of God on his people brings us to this place where we have unreasonable love. It's chosen us. It brings us under this incredible safety of his discipline. And before us, we have the promise that God says, I will lead you. Trust me. Amen. We bless you. We break it there. <clears throat>